Well, 79 years ago, in February of 1943, a young 21-year-old German university student named Sophie Scholl was caught distributing anti-Nazi leaflets. This young woman, Sophie, was part of the White Rose, which was a student resistance group that was producing leaflets denouncing uh, the Nazi regime, denouncing the killing of Jews as a crime unparalleled in all of history. And it was Sophie's fervently held Christian beliefs that motivated, that led her to risk her life. And she was arrested by the Gestapo. She was interrogated, tried, and sentenced to death. And some of her final words were, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? It is such a splendid sunny day and I have to go. What does my death matter if our actions will shake and awaken thousands of people? God, you are my refuge into eternity. Where does a person find the courage to stand up against evil, even if the consequence means suffering or, or death? How could Sophie Scholl have such deep convictions, and knowing that her cause would be vindicated, knowing history would see that she was right, that her sacrifice would be worth it? Well, for Sophie, it was the reality of God and of eternity beyond this life, something much bigger than herself, something worth giving her life for. Well, this morning we are continuing in our series in the book of Esther, and part of what we're going to be considering is what it means to stand against evil and what it means to hold on to our faith in God, even if it brings suffering, and even if our, our vindication, our deliverance, doesn't come in this life. So if you'll turn to Esther uh, chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 19. You can find that on page 411 in the Blue Pew Bible. But I'm going to begin reading in, in Esther 2, 19, and we're going to go through chapter 3. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on a king Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So last Sunday, we were introduced uh, to the court of this Persian king, Ahasuerus, um, commonly known as Xerxes. And and in in the passage last Sunday, the old queen, Vashti, was deposed for not coming when the king called her. And so Esther, the cousin of a Jew named Mordecai, was chosen to be the new queen. But as we were were reminded uh, in this morning's text, Esther was keeping her Jewish identity secret. And so this week, and what we just read, uh, there is so much that happens. Mordecai, at the end of chapter 2, performs uh, this, this good deed, but then an enemy rises from within the Persian court and brings an enormous crisis on, on Mordecai and Esther and all their people, and the stakes could not be higher. What I'm hoping that, that, we will, that we will see and that we'll be able to understand um, as, as we go through this text, as we walk through it, and as we, as we seek uh, to discern what, what, we are, what we are to learn and what we are to do uh, with, with God's word for us, my prayer is that we would, 
that we would hear, we would hear this. Seek the good of all, never bow to evil, but understand that in God's story, suffering precedes glory. And so as we were kind of walking through the story, kind of scene by scene, section by section, uh, I believe part of what God wants us to, to, to understand and to see is that we should, as, as Christians, as those before God's word this morning, we should seek the good of all, never bow to evil, but understand that in God's story, suffering precedes glory. So this first section is a plot foiled in, in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, a plot foiled. We open with this largely positive event uh, in terms of, of, of the characters we know, Mordecai and Esther. Look again at verse 21. It says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So as it's described here, Mordecai um, sits at the king's gate. Now, this doesn't mean Mordecai was, was like an old beggar just kind of sitting in the dirt as people walked in and out of the king's palace. Uh, the gate of the king's palace was a large building, uh, and there's, there's even archaeological evidence for this, but it was a large building uh, that, where official business took place. And so Mordecai apparently held some kind of official position in Xerxes' uh, court. Perhaps this was through Esther's influence. We, we don't know. Uh, but it's in this context he learns about this plot against the king. Uh, and this was certainly no... Uh, no matter to be trifled with. Um, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, uh, King Xerxes eventually was going to be assassinated in his own bedroom uh, in the year 465 BC, so just 14 years after Esther became queen. So this was a, this was a real thing. This happened uh, to these Persian kings. So Mordecai, he acts loyally to the king saving his life from these would-be assassins. Now, in protecting the king and in serving him in this way, I think Mordecai acts in accordance with, with teaching that we see throughout the Old and New Testaments, uh, beginning with the instructions uh, that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 7, he said to the exiles, "'Build houses,' And live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And certainly Daniel, in the book of Daniel, uh, another Hebrew exile, he is an example of obeying this command. He, he loyally serves kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. He even, at one point, pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his pride in order to avert God's judgment on him uh, in Daniel chapter 4. But then when we get to the New Testament, uh, you know, Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings 
be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then the Apostle Peter, in one of his letters, he writes in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then jumping down a little bit in verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so church, as we consider these passages from from the Old and the New Testament, let's just take a moment and consider how are we doing? Um, Do we support and even honor legitimate authority? Do we pray for our leaders even when we prefer someone else was in that position? Do we understand our responsibility to promote the welfare of all people in our communities and not to be hostile to those with, with a different agenda or different values? Because we have to remember, Jeremiah wrote his letter to people like Daniel who are living in, in the empire of the arrogant and bloodthirsty Nebuchadnezzar. Paul and Peter were writing during the reign of Nero, and it doesn't get a lot worse than that. So we've And then we think about Esther. We've certainly seen how volatile and how dangerous King Xerxes could be. These were not idyllic regimes. And yet God's people are instructed not to speak evil against, not to wish harm to their leaders, even if their governing approach leaves much to be desired. So we should ask ourselves, do we allow these scriptural truths to guide our speech. And yes, even, even in America, uh, even in the, the land of the free, our free speech must be governed by God's word. Can I hear an amen? Our social media, even our actions and the way that we conduct ourselves. So, so here's just a little question. Would unbelievers read a passage like Jeremiah 29 or 1 Peter 2 And would they say, you know what, the the people of South Canyon Baptist Church that I know, they're an example of this very thing, this this kind of an attitude. And look, I I know there are a lot of major shifts in the world. There are many critically important issues in this culture, in this country. There are some really bad, harmful ideas that are being promoted. I I understand. I, I agree. I get all of that. But remember... Brothers and sisters, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians 6. And then one more thing to notice here about this this story with Mordecai. He acts loyally to the king and saves his life. It's written down, but nothing happens There's no reward. There's no recognition. And this becomes important later in the story. But but right now, it's worth noting that just life is sometimes like that. You know, they say no good deed goes unpunished. Well, at the very least, Mordecai, for now, is overlooked. He gets none of the reward that you would expect normally from such a wealthy, powerful king. And while this is a painful slight... And, and the sense of, of the kind of the unfairness and the injustice is only going to intensify 
as the narrative goes on. But this is no coincidence. Okay, part of God's providence is at work here. It's painful now, but you see, God's sovereign purpose is for Mordecai to wait for his reward. And we are going to see that eventually. But moving on to the next part of the story here, point two, an enemy promoted, an enemy promoted at the beginning of of chapter three. Let's just look at verses one and two right now. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So a new character is introduced at this point in the book, Haman the Agagite. And first of all, this should shock us as as readers. This guy is promoted, advanced, and set above all the other officials. Not Mordecai, not the faithful servant who just saved the king's life. And and why exactly? uh, What did Haman do to deserve such honor? Well, no explanation is given. But, you know, it's, it's likely that Mordecai felt a lot the same way that Jeremiah uh, felt when he wrote Jeremiah 12, 1. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. This is the way uh, we see the world going sometimes. This is the way we as, as Christians can feel at times. And there, we see that in other places in Scripture. But there's another literary clue that we need to follow. You remember when Mordecai was first introduced um, back last week, his, his role as an official wasn't highlighted, or, and it wasn't even his, his integrity or his age or his wisdom. No, he was introduced as a Benjaminite from the family line of Saul. And now when Haman is introduced. Likewise, it's not with a title. It's not with some sort of a physical description of him. No, he is the Agagite. Now, Agag was the king of the Amalekites, who were the long-standing enemies of Israel. The Amalekites were, were the, they had the notoriety of being the first people who tried to destroy the nation of Israel in Exodus 17, just as they were coming um, out of uh, captivity and into the promised land. And Deuteronomy 25.18 recounts specifically that the Israelites were weary and worn out, and the Amalekites met them and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And so God had, had promised Israel that he would be at war with them from generation to generation. And so in 1 Samuel 15... And this is the connection with Mordecai. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul was commanded uh, by, by Samuel, by God, through the prophet Samuel, to destroy the Amalekites, including King Agag. But Saul disobeyed and spared Agag's life. And then as a result, God rejected Saul from being king, and David was anointed king in his place. And so now, here in Persia, five centuries later, a descendant of King Saul meets a descendant of King Agag, this 
this age-old enemy of Israel. So this, this is a character that, that we as the reader are primed to expect will want to destroy the Jews. But as this enemy arises through the ranks, as this threat comes onto the scene, really there's, there's a million-dollar question that the book of Esther is confronting us with. This is the way that, that one commentator uh, explains it. They write, God's promise to protect Israel and to be at war with Amalek in every generation was given within the context of the Sinai Covenant, right? The Sinai Covenant given to Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. But would that promise still stand for the Jews living in exile precisely because they had violated that covenant? Could they expect God to be faithful to his covenant promises when they had failed to keep theirs? Now, just to heighten the stakes, lest we should fail to see how this crisis really affects us, if God was to give up on Israel, what would that mean for the rest of the nations? Right? All hope would be lost. And this is the tension that we are meant to feel. So Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. Uh, this, this may have been a religious conviction. It doesn't, doesn't specifically tell us. But certainly Haman is furious, and when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, it says he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. No, Haman would not rest until he could destroy all the Jews throughout the entire kingdom, and this would include the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple of Yahweh. So, you know, earlier on in chapter 2, we saw Mordecai as an example of proper honor and loyalty to the governing authorities, now we see a different example as he disregards the king's command in his refusal to bow to Haman. Now, considering the way that, that Mordecai and Haman kind of represent or stand in for this age-old conflict, this age-old conflict between the Jews and the Amalekites, I think, I think it's valid to view Mordecai's refusal here as a parallel to, to other acts of refusal in Scripture. So, for instance, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 who refuse to comply with Pharaoh's command to kill the baby boys, or the, the three Hebrew, uh, Hebrew young men in Daniel 3 who refuse to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And then even moving into the New Testament, Peter and John, right, before the Sanhedrin in Acts 5, their words are, we must obey God rather than men. So there's a time for God's people to disobey government. And that is when obedience to human government would mean disobedience to God. But here's what we have to remember, right? Doing what's right, standing against evil, it's not an easy path. It can lead to, to hardship, to abuse, to suffering. And sometimes, like we're going to see here in, in the book of Esther, sometimes wicked rulers under the influence of, of demonic powers, bring all their might to bear in an effort to completely wipe the righteous off the face of the earth. And that's what we kind of see in this, this third section, this third act, uh, a genocide approved, verses 7 through 15. 
Let's, uh, let's read again, beginning in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So up here in, in verse 7, there's kind of this, this thing that maybe it seems a little confusing to us. Haman casts lots, these, these clay cubes that would have been a lot like our dice. Uh, they're called pur, and the, the plural form of that word is purim. Now, the, the book of Esther, uh, in, in large part, is, is a story explaining, describing the origins of the festival of Purim. Now, Haman, through this casting of lots, he settles on basically a lucky month, right? The opportune month to get this done. And then he brings his evil plot to the king. Now, Haman doesn't specifically name the Jews as the people he wants to destroy. And the king seems so apathetic, he doesn't even ask. Uh, the Jews, these, this people, this unnamed people, are characterized as a threat to the empire, following their own laws, disobeying the king's laws. And Haman says it is not the king's profit to tolerate them, which is certainly ironic considering that Mordecai and Esther just saved the king's life. And we also see here that Haman offers a bribe of 10,000 talents of silver, which was just a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, this, this may have been the equivalent of of two-thirds of a, an entire year's revenue of the per, from the Persian Empire. Now, Xerxes had just returned from an unsuccessful war against Greece, and so this offer for like, hey, here's a whole another year's revenue for your kingdom, um, that may have been very attractive. And perhaps all of this wealth was, was supposed to come from, from plundering the possessions of the, the murdered Jews. But in any case... Xerxes goes along with the whole thing. Haman, who's identified in verse 10 again as the Agagite and the enemy of the Jews, he's given the king's signet ring, and along with that, he's given the full authority to carry out this plan. And so here, this is the great crisis of Esther. This is the, the dire threat to God's people. And really, it's, it's the age-old story, you know, from the beginning all the way to the end of redemptive history. We see it in, in the enmity described between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then jumping all the way to the end, that serpent also described as a dragon in Revelation 12, Satan, who tries to devour the promised son of the woman, representing the Messiah. And then in, in Revelation 13, of course, 
the beast who receives power and authority from the dragon and demands worship and makes war on the saints who refuse to bow their knee. Now, the story of Esther and, and, and Haman's hatred here against Mordecai and his people, it's, it's a reminder of the way that Israel has been threatened with extinction time and time again. You know, God's chosen people, uh, the ones through whom the Messiah would come, through whom his promises would be fulfilled. And, you know, even in my own, my grandparents' generation, right, evil rulers sought to completely wipe out the Jewish people in the Holocaust. And that's what, what Sophie Scholl was, was standing against. Now, if you aren't a believer, if, and if you're not uh, fully convinced of, of the reality of, of God and Satan, of, of spiritual realities, I wonder what explanation you have for the persistence of this kind of anti-Semitism throughout history. Because you see, God's word has a clear explanation. It's the spiritual forces of evil in concert with, with wicked leaders like Haman. And you know, while these attitudes are still alive to this day, and, and they're still as, as ugly as ever, God is not done with Israel. He promises in in the, the book of, of Romans, chapter 11, he promises a future blessing, a, f- a future great salvation for the Jewish people. And, you know, that's something that, that those of us who are, who are Gentile believers, those of us who've been grafted into God's saving work, it's something that we should, should pray for and we should long uh, to see fulfilled. Now, Haman's plan, his... his uh, his approach here, I mean, there's so many things wrong with it, we don't have time today, but his argument that it is not profitable for the king to allow uh, these people to live is really kind of an example of, of utilitarianism, uh, which, which just means doing whatever brings the most happiness or good to the most people without regard for what is right or truly just. You know, and as Christians, we understand that where human lives are involved, making decisions based on what's most profitable or what benefits the majority or those with the power, that is an unacceptable approach to deciding right and wrong. Because every human life has value and dignity because it is created in the image of God. Now, Haman's plan is also an ugly picture of, of, of racist hatred toward the Jews. You know, as Christians, we understand that, that any racism toward any people is, is wicked and ungodly. You know, racism could be defined as, as discrimination against or hatred of people of particular races, uh, believing stereotypes about them, seeing them as inferior, uh, not, not seeing them as having the same rights or the, va- the same value as, as you and I. And, you know, such ideas have no place among God's people. And, and I'm, sure, I'm sure you all agree with that. But here's, here's the challenge for us uh, this morning. And that's just to recognize that, you know, our own culture, our own history and our experiences, all these things, the world we live in, can influence and shape us in so many ways that we, uh, that we don't see. And sometimes... 
These other things that influence us and influence the way that we view people, they're influence us, influencing us more than God's truth is, is shaping and influencing us. And so we simply need humility. We need to, to always be pursuing growth and sanctification, pursuing mercy and justice so that we can truly love our neighbor, right? As Jesus commanded all his disciples, this is what fulfills the law, love of our neighbor, whoever they might be, in the way that Christ would have us to love and to honor them. And so, you know, Haman, he writes this deadly decree. It's written in the king's name. It's sealed with his ring. We read in verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. You know, it's just, it's a, a stunningly brazen plan of, of genocide, of murder, all these people to be annihilated. And yet the king and Haman, they just go back to their lavish comforts, sitting down for, for a glass of wine. They're completely unfazed. While the people, we're told the people of the city are thrown into total confusion. And I think it's at this point that we really have to grapple with the hard truth that I alluded to earlier, but in God's story, Throughout redemptive history, suffering precedes glory. Persecution comes before vindication. And when God's people stand for what's right, when they refuse to bow their knee to the, the idols of their day, there are consequences. And the timing of, of when or how God will deliver them is not guaranteed. Now, don't get me wrong, God will deliver his people. But again, the timing of when or how, it's not, it's not guaranteed. I always think, and I find it so helpful, uh, the example of, of Daniel's Hebrew friends when threatened with the fiery furnace, and their words where they say to the king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And, and why is this the case? Why do we see this pattern? Well, it's because most of all we see this pattern in Jesus Christ, the ultimate one who is going to, to stand against evil Jesus himself, when, when, he, when he came to this earth and then when he was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, he refused to bow and to worship Satan. And, and what happened as the rest of the story unfolded? The powers that be, the religious leaders, ultimately the Roman Empire turned their full might and fury on him for destruction. 
You know, Jesus was not going to back down. He knew his mission. He set his face like flint uh, towards the cross. And so the cross came before the crown. The suffering came before the glory. And Jesus was killed on that cross, the victim of hatred and injustice. But through his death, he won the victory over Satan and evil. Through his unjust execution, satanically inspired, instigated by the Jewish religious establishment, carried out by the Roman soldiers, through all of that, God was fulfilling his promises. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross turned away God's wrath against sinners. And now anyone who repents and who turns to him in faith is forgiven and accepted given eternal life. Jesus was not rescued from death on that cross, but God vindicated him, for he rose to life on the third day, and now he reigns in glory, and he will come back to save all those who refuse to bow to Satan and to all the ungodly world powers that oppose God. That's our hope as Christians, if that is, if that is a hope that, that you're not familiar with, that you don't know for yourself, uh, we'd love to talk about that with you. We'd love to, to pray with you, to explore, uh, to, to read God's word together with you, and just try to explain what that means. But like Mordecai, and like the Jewish people, as Christians, we don't have a guarantee that we'll escape from suffering. You know, what we do have is God's promise that persecution or danger or even death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. As it says in Romans 8, even if, even if we're like sheep to be slaughtered, we are more than conquerors through him. And so Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that, that you would just be in work at work in us, that um, as we in our lives are going to face, uh, face challenges, face challenges, um, dilemmas, face opportunities where we can either stand for you or, or give in to, uh, to the cultures and the powers, uh, the idols of this world. God, that you would just be strengthening and empowering and causing us to grow so that we would be uh, people uh, who stand with our Savior, Jesus, who would not back down and would not bow, uh, but took the path of, of suffering and persecution and death, death on a cross in obedience uh, to your will and uh, for our salvation, for our eternal joy, our eternal good. God, we pray you would just give us wisdom. Whether, whether those trials, whether those tests come this week or whether they come years down the road, that you are at work in us, uh, you've begun a good work, and you will bring it to completion. 
And so we just pray you be uh, just with us every step of the way, causing us to stand firm, um, not out of our own strength, uh, but simply uh, out of love, out of uh, a seeking to be like our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.